This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Architecture is a visual craft, from the end product where people move through, in, and about it, to the beginning as students when we spend years in school learning to use different forms of medium to help explain our ideas. Drawings have always played a role in the process of study and discussion of what we do and why we do it. Today, we're going to take a look at the different forms of drawing and talk about when they're used and how we align these different drawing types and the messages we are attempting to convey. Welcome to episode 140, Communicating Through Drawings. Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Construction Specialties, maker of architectural building products designed to master the movement of buildings, people, and natural elements. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're talking about the word drawing and what that could be defined as and the ways the different type of drawings convey different types of messages. Sketching as a drawing, renderings as drawings, drafting as drawings, when do these take place and who the target for the message is and how those people might be receptive to the intended message and how it is conveyed. Now, when we came up with this idea, it kind of got vetted out via text, which happens a lot when you and I are trying to figure out what we're going to talk about on these shows. Like we have a topic, but we're like, what is this going to, how do we want this to manifest itself? So I sent Andrew a text and I kind of said, this is what I'm thinking, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, this is what I'm thinking. And it was pretty much the kind of the same thing, I think. Yeah, we were close. We were close. Oddly enough. Yeah, we were pretty close. So I've kind of broken the show down into three major chunks. One is there's kind of a bit of a history portion at the beginning. And this is something that happens with times. You know, I'll get messages and people say, ooh, more drawings. Or if I post digital stuff, they'll go, ooh, more hand sketches, you know, or whatever it is. There's definitely an interest in drawing as something that either you and I are aligned with, or at least the kind of content that people are looking to learn more about that's out there in the space of people that listen to architectural podcasts. So I went in and I go, all right, I'm in my in my whatever age, I guess I don't need to put that business out there on the internet. <laughs> anyway, I graduated in the early 90s. So we'll just put it at that. 1990s. I guess I should clarify. Last century, as some of my students tend <laughs> yes. to remind me. Yes, at least it's not the one before that. So one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting is I came out of school and there were no computers. Nobody was using computers. And the ones that did, it was like $40,000 a station in 1990 dollars. Which now, if I ask the young people in the office who yell at me because I could buy a house for $100,000 when I was their age, yeah, and they're like, houses now are five times that much. So, okay, dumb math tells you that $40,000 drafting station now would probably be worth, you know, what it cost in today's dollars, like 200 grand. Yeah. These are not cheap things. So, a lot of people were not doing it just yet. So, the thing I thought would be kind of interesting to start off with is a little bit of a history. And I wanted to look at the last 100 years and see. What kind of notable things, what kind of things happened that shifted us from one type of thinking or one type of communication to another? And it was a lot harder to get this information than I expected, quite honestly. I was looking through my books and I did some searching on the internet. And really, most of the kind of transformative properties of how we communicate through drawings changed in the last kind of 30 years. 
Everything before then was by hand. There was no digital renderings. There were no tablets. There were no computers. So, yeah, the biggest change was the invention of the perspective drawing. <laughs> oh my God, right? Like things are perspective now. Yeah. So here's what I went and found out. So during the modernism, this would have been like the 20s and the 30s, during modernism and the Bauhaus movement, there were architects like Walter Gropris and Mies van der Rohe who promoted the idea of combining traditional drawing techniques with modern materials and technologies. So things like hand sketches during this period, they often explored like really simplified geometric forms. And there was an emphasis on the clarity and the functionality, which it's not surprising because that's what the architecture was like at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So artists and architects at the Bauhaus, and we've been talking about the Bauhaus a lot, so I've been pulling out all my books. Their idea was, how could they capture the essence of a design with just a few essential lines, which is probably the most modern or Bauhausian kind of idea behind conveying <laughs> something through drawing yeah. ever. Statement to make, yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So... Then I couldn't really find anything for about 40 years. I mean, there were kind of ebbs and flows, and they might have been moving around outside of the barest, minimal, essential line kind of conveying of drawings. But it wasn't until like the 70s and 80s and postmodernism where Robert Venturi and Michael Graves, they started to put more of a narrative and expressive approach into their sketches. So hand sketches became more of a tool for conveying meaning and contextual references. So you start to see drawings showing up to explore historical motifs or composition of the sketch became more of an articulation of not just the thing you were trying to discuss, but the things around the thing that you were trying to discuss. And the attempt was to communicate ideas in a more visually engaging manner. So it wasn't like, here's these eight lines, figure out what they mean. Like, I'm distilled this down into a concept. This was Here's a conversation on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. You can start to interpolate what I've drawn because I've given you other pieces of information to help set it into an environment or into a place that helps you get my message without me talking. Yeah, which, again, was actually kind of a response to that previous idea of modernism, which was kind of contextless, right? There was no context, and it was right. just that. So even the drawings were an architectural response to what they were trying to go against, right? Yeah. Postmodernism. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and which is probably, for that reason, it was easy to identify, okay, there was a shift that was taking place because the architecture was responding to what was happening before then. So then you get to the 90s. This is when Bob Borson, as a architectural student or student graduate, starts to have sentience. I started to like understand things a little bit better. The 90s saw like a widespread adoption of computer-aided design tools and this completely altered the architectural design process. You know, you started getting software like AutoCAD, MicroStation, and, you know, and eventually 3D modeling programs. Like, I still remember TrueSpace. If you can raise your hand and go, oh, I remember TrueSpace, you are 100% dating yourself. I mean, you're going to be my content. Or Form Z. Yeah, Form, Form Z was also. I mean, TrueSpace was a little bit earlier, but Form Z was like right there behind it. Yeah. And, you know, and like True Space, those were for the movie industry. They were not made for us. Yeah. We just kind of co-opted them into the process. Yeah. But modeling programs like that allowed folks like us to create, I mean, pretty precise and easily editable digital drawings. So hand sketching was still a thing, but there was a shift towards using these digital tools. And then you started to get people to combine their hand sketches with digital renderings 
which ultimately created a more iterative and collaborative design process. Like I could sketch something and then scan it and bring it into Photoshop and I could start to embellish. I mean, there was now you started to get in kind of a, a morphing of the two a little bit. But then, then like you get from 2010, I don't know. This is debatable, this part. I don't really know when this happened. And there's like, I don't know. I couldn't find any information that said this is this demarcation of when this shift happened. But somewhere between like the 2010s to early 2020s, as digital technology became more prevalent, there was a growing nostalgia for the tactile and personal nature of hand drawings. I mean, I personally experienced this because I could use my Instagram account as a perfect case study of this because hand sketching experienced this resurgence as a means of ideation, conceptual exploration, but that seemed to be like a lost art. I don't know, the late 90s for like the next 10 or 15 years, people stopped sketching. A lot of them did. Not everybody. I mean, this is, we're not talking in absolutes here, people, so don't come at me for this sort of stuff. But, <laughs> but the number of comments that I got about sketching, and I not one moment in my life, to this day, right now, I can raise my, I put my hand on the Bible, raise my hand and say, you know what? I do not consider myself good at sketching. And that is not false modesty, because there are people out there that are really good. But I get a lot of people, and I think that just kind of shows you the scale from like people that don't do it to the people that do it all the time. There is this kind of like, where do you fall along that pecking order? And I do it more than the people that don't, but I don't do it often enough to be that person that is great. When you see someone that's great at it, you can recognize greatness. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? Jealousy on my part, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, jealousy on my part as well. Yeah. And what's funny is if I post stuff to Instagram, and I kind of stop for a while, I mean, I kind of do more stories now than anything else. And part of it was because I don't sketch by hand very much anymore because I've moved to a tablet, which I love. I love the process that I go through now. It's more convenient, and I have it forever, and I don't have like stacks of weird trace paper that I'm toting around or getting wrinkled and smashed up. I mean... It's just kind of changed things a bit. But if I post a hand sketch on a scale of one to 10, that'll get a 10 on terms of like engagement or number of likes or whatever the case may be. If I take like a cool picture, like this is the coolest picture I've ever taken in my life, it'll get like a two on a scale <laughs> of one to 10. Like, yeah. I mean, I guess I can understand it. But that's the nostalgia. I mean, people just, they really, really like crave that sort of stuff. Yeah. And there's definitely been a resurgence in it. And then that brings us to, I'll say, 2023. And that's fake news because it, it's been happening to some degree since the 90s, but it's like really into it now. And now it's all about this hybrid approach. So it's, it's the idea that you're trying to find a balance between traditional sketching technique as well as the digital tools that are, I mean, let's admit it, they're widely available. And the hybrid approach allows people to experience the benefits of both of these worlds. You get the spontaneity and the expressiveness of hand sketches coupled with the precision and efficiency of the digital tools. Because here's the other part that falls into this. I feel like I'm monologuing a bit, so I'm going to take a breath in a minute. But, And I don't know if this really became a thing during COVID when everybody was working from home, but the need to be able to communicate not in the presence of another person has really made an impact on how this hybrid sketching technique things have evolved because that really drove me towards, I use Morfolio Trace, which I love. And they don't pay me. I'm not endorsed by them. And I would highly recommend everybody check that software out because 
I can join an online meeting and I can sketch. And as a left-handed person who uses the mouse in their right hand, I can't draw with a mouse and with my incorrect hand. But now if I'm on a Teams call, I'll just add the tablet, my iPad, to the call. And then I can just share that screen and I can draw correctly and I can do layers and I can keep notes and like drawing notes, not written notes. So it's fundamentally changed how I work. And that's more of a hybrid process now than I think we've ever had before. I think we're struggling. Well, struggling is not the right word. We're trying to find how we can leverage all of these different techniques right now. And we haven't even gotten into AI and what it's starting to do. So that was what I was going to say is to me, that's the next monumental shift that's coming in the way that we communicate. But we're in its infancy. I think it's going to be another few years before we can say, oh, here's the mark where everything's changed. Well, you know, I wonder, we're recording this show in five years from now, and we revisit the topic, we're going to say, 2024 was the year of AI. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? I mean, I can go down about 10 rabbit holes super quick where AI is concerned. Like, we have a group in the office that's really getting into it, mm. and I, I sit in on those meetings, and one of the guys who's kind of the organizer of those meetings, I spoke sternly to him the other day because he was kind of like, oh, I hope everybody has their assignments done for today's AI meeting. And I was kind of like, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, we asked everybody to look at the new software. And I, I was telling him about our company Christmas card. And there was some consideration for us to do something similar to what I'd prepared for our gift guide graphic, which was the construction paper Santa Clauses mm -hmm. that I made. And he goes, what did you do that in? And I said, well, I just did it on mid-journey. I mean, it took 45 iterations to finally get to where I landed with something. The one I wanted. Yeah, yeah I wanted he tried to make this comparison about that was akin to me using a box cutter on cardboard when we have 3D printers right there. Like I'm that old guy using box cutters and cardboard when we have new technologies. And I didn't really take that very well. Funny. So I, I kind of got on him a little bit and I was like, you need to put a little bit of structure because this is not about what else, what else, what else. You need to look at a couple and say, what are the pros? What are the cons? Strengths? Weaknesses? Is it scalable? How does it change the business? Can I use it in a way that's productive? I mean, not just what's the next thing. You need to stop trying to get out in front of yourself on every single one of these emerging AI platforms, but figure out which ones actually work for us in a way that makes sense and that we can benefit from using. So then I went to the meeting and he's like, okay, everyone, we're going to do this. We're going to, let's look at these ones and how they, how we can find value in them as a company and how many people can use them and is it scalable and all those kind of good things. So anyway, AI is coming for us and we definitely wouldn't be able to have this conversation today and a year from now without having that be a bigger part of the conversation. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So you want to start talking about the different drawing styles? Sure. And by styles, I mean the type of drawing, not hit, go hit, <laughs> pen weight, not that kind of conversation. So we have a bit of a coin flip on where to start. But I'm going to push for us to start with the analog end of things as our base, and then we can build up from there. Sounds good. So freehand sketching. First, I just wrote sketching. And then I said, I went, no, for our conversation, I need to put in there freehand sketching, because this is actually like you holding a pen or a pencil or something in your hand and drawing on a surface. That's what I mean when I say freehand sketching. The question is, what's the benefit and when would you use it? Is that allowed to have a straight edge? Or does that not freehand anymore if I have a little straight edge? 
I think he can do it. I mean, if you're using your hands and you're holding stuff and you're manipulating it, sure, great. Okay, you, all right. Use that. That's fine. I mean, you sketch a little, but you're not a big sketcher, are you? Not as much as I would like to be. I would love to sketch more. I just don't ever have the time. Or, or let me rephrase. I don't ever make the time. I shouldn't make the time. I mean, I sketch a lot of details and stuff in class and things for students like that, but they're all those quick, messy, really, let me do this in three seconds to show you how to do stuff. I wish I sketched more, but no, I don't sketch a lot right now. What do you think about the people that use sketchbooks? I was never a sketchbook person. And honestly, I wasn't because it was too intimidating. I have tons of sketchbooks, but most of them have notes and doodles in them, right? But not, not actual sketches. I like that. I'm kind of jealous of those people, too. But I think there's something to be said for it to, to be able to, like the people that I know that have sketchbooks, what they'll do is they'll sit somewhere for a while and sketch out something. Like, I don't know, they go visit whatever, the palazzo or whatever. Or the, they sit there and they sketch for an hour or something. And I think it's an interesting way to record architecture and time that is beneficial in some ways, I think. Well, okay. That's a funny thing that you brought that up because I, I wrote down a couple of reasons because every now and then when we have conversations about sketching, you get the old timers that say, oh, it's far better way to record information because there's no interface between your brain and your hand. I used to believe that, but I don't anymore because if you learned that way, yes, you would probably interpret using some type of digital platform as the interface that you are adding layers of unnecessary thought to your recording process. But if you were never that person, I don't know that that would get in the way for you. I just don't think that people nowadays, their process doesn't flow the same. So I don't think that we can use the same standard at which to measure it. Yeah, the only caveat I say to that is that sometimes, at least with some people, students, but even I think young people, it could possibly create limitations in what I can do because I don't understand how to do that in software or the software. My most favorite thing, well, I couldn't figure out how to do it in the software. It's not what I wanted because I couldn't figure out how to make it work in the software. That would be the only caveat to that that I say. Again, if, it depends what you're talking about. I mean, if we're talking about just drawing like you on Morfolio Trace and stuff, that's different as opposed to trying to model something in three dimensions. I know, but couldn't I push back on that and say, okay, you could model it, but can you draw it? Yeah. People can't draw it either. You might. I don't know. Sometimes even curves and things like that can get a little complicated. but. I agree. You can model so much more, I think, than you can draw. But that might be a bold statement. But So when you brought up the idea of sitting somewhere and drawing for a while, what always pops in my head is the Kimball Art Museum mm -hmm. over in Fort Worth. Because mm -hmm. yeah. if you go there, you're going to see that. Yeah. And one of the benefits that I think that you do get, this is in that moment, is enhanced spatial recognition. The act of you slowing down enough to be in a space and process it to a degree to where you can record it yourself by hand onto a piece of paper or whatever platform. Yeah. Now, I would say that's the same thing as me sketching in a software like Procreate. I could do the same thing. It doesn't have to be pencil and paper, but... I agree. It's the same thing. It's the slowing and the experience of the space that you get from sitting there for that long. Yeah. So hand sketching in this regard fosters a direct tactile engagement between the person doing the drawing and the drawing surface. And this physical connection allows those people to intimately explore spatial relationships and proportions in a way that digital tools may not fully replicate. By digital tools, I mean like 
I don't think you sitting there with your laptop and a mouse in SketchUp trying to model the Kimball as opposed to you recording it, whether it's paper and pencil or stylus and tablet. Yeah. All right. So there's that. Another one of the benefits I think that you get from hand sketching is you get rapid ideation and conceptual exploration. The iterative ability of, of being able to do that is, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's an immediacy that hand sketching takes place and it enables architects to quickly translate abstract ideas into some type of visual form, whether or not it's artistic, like it's beautiful, it's ready for presentation, but it can capture that moment. And this kind of rapid ideation is crucial in the early stages of design process because, and I don't know if this is, again, a generational thing, and I don't want this stay out of my yard mentality to creep into these conversations. But if I ask somebody to explore something and they're on the computer, I'll come back like three hours later and they're like halfway done with one scheme, or maybe they've got one and it's fully banged out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, use this super fat pen so that you don't get into the weeds. And I'm going to walk away, and in like 10 minutes, I want 15 different block yeah. massing. I'm, yeah. I'm not looking for a finished product. I'm looking for you to explore these ideas, and you can go through them so much more fast than just by whack, 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 whack on a piece of paper. And that's the other thing. I still remember when I was in college, I had a professor. His name was Paul Lamb. And he made a comment about like, hey, you just got to sit at your desk, and you got to draw till it hurts. That's one of the things that he always pushed on it. But one of the things we talked about was the nib on the pen sometimes can be your friend. Because if you use a fat enough pen, you can't get in the weeds of drawing too much detail. Like it's, yeah. like you can't, you just can't do it. Yeah. One of the other bullet points I wrote down here was the effective communication with the quote unquote other party. And that just means whoever it is you're talking with. And hand sketching possesses a certain authenticity and an immediacy that I feel resonates with clients and coworkers. And it's a pretty powerful communication tool. That allows me to help articulate what I'm trying to say at the same time that I'm saying it. So I have a giant whiteboard behind my desk. And the number of times that as I'm saying something to somebody that I will be drawing it out. And I'm not necessarily talking about details. It could be words. It could be bar diagrams. It could be like yeah, moments exactly. in time. Yes. I was trying to explain work from home and PTO. And I did a drawing on the wall to show how what this meant. And what I don't know, what I believe is that. It helps those people, you're now cataloging that data in two different places in your brain, like where you store visual data and where you store audible data. They're not the same place. Mm -hmm. So the likelihood that someone's going to retain it and understand it and process it more thoroughly when they have both the audible and the visual at the same time, I think is greater. So I go, it's, it's a superior form of communication than one or the other. Yeah, I think that's, a, to me, that's what I find that most architects, at least I don't know. The ones that I tend to communicate with, we're always drawing to, <laughs> to have conversations. You sit at a bar or something, you get a napkin, and you start drawing or something to have a conversation about. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Not even architecture, but you're going to start sketching something. They go, no, this is what I'm talking about. And it's whatever it is. But I think that's just a way that we tend to communicate. And I agree with you that I think it's something that the clients really appreciate or whoever we're conveying that message to. I think there's even that combination. We've talked about it before of being able to communicate that way, but also do it on the fly. Whereas mm -hmm. if I'm in a meeting or if we've got to change something, even if I'm on the job site, to be able to draw out something to communicate to someone in that moment, exactly what I'm meaning is really one of the benefits of that. Yeah. Yes, I could go back and model it to perfection or draft it, whatever it is, but just 
on a piece of sheetrock in the middle of the job site to do the same thing is a really one of the benefits of being able to, to hand sketch out something. And again, we're not talking about beautiful sketches, but communicative sketches. Yeah. So the last one I put on here, and it really, I don't know if this is the right place for it as being the last bullet point versus someone else. But when I mentioned earlier about if I post a sketch to Instagram, like the kind of responses that I get to it, and when I tell people, oh, I'm not good at sketching, and they go, oh, man, I wish I could sketch like you. I mean, it's all relative, right? Yeah. And, and I can recognize that. But what has happened, and I'm pretty sure I've told this story before, and I'm not going to tell the full version, but it, it's really succinct and illustrating the point I'm about to make. And the bullet point is cultivation of your own personal design language. It's the idea that through continuous practice of sketching, you'll develop a unique and personal design language, like how you draw things will start to manifest itself over and over and over again, because that's how your brain works. That's how your hand works. That's where your skill level is at. So one of the things that happens that I look at it, and I have 10 years worth of sketches on Instagram now that I can go back and look at, and I've got sketchbooks that go back 30 years. I don't really sketch much differently now than I did 10 or 20 years ago. Mm. I'm pretty sure I told this story before. I know I've talked about it on the site in a blog post before, and it was, I had a sketch that I had had put on the website, and somebody stole it, and they used it for an article that they wrote that ended up in Home Depot's free magazine. <laughs> yeah. I got this contractor from Philadelphia messaged me, and he goes, hey, isn't this your sketch? And just from the style of it, just the, from the way that it was drawn, he recognized it as mine. Mm -hmm. which that was kind of a surreal moment for me that it didn't have my name on it, but he knew that that was mine because of the way that it looked, Yeah, which that's crazy to me. But clearly I have a style and it's just kind of evolved from what my abilities are. It wasn't anything that was intended. And I think that that happens to everyone who picks up a pencil or a stylus or whatever it is that you have a way that your drawings are going to show up on the page. And unless you make a lot of concerted effort to change it, that's kind of what it's going to be. But then once you change it, then that's what, I mean, like there is an evolution to it. There's what happens because that's just what it is. And then there's one that you create and then you, that becomes what it is. There's sort of a, an evolution and a growth to it, but at some point it stays that way. Unless you just really, like you say, make a hardcore effort to change it because it just becomes how you do the thing you do. Yeah more from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined today by Amy Sweeting, Product Manager for Interior Product Solutions at Construction Specialties. Over the past nine years, she has held various positions at CS, including Senior Drafter, Project Coordinator, Promotions and Territory Sales Manager. And as Project Manager, Amy helps guide the strategy for new and existing products. She's constantly collaborating with cross-functional teams as well as customers to understand needs and how to translate those into products and services that continue to evolve commercial interiors. Amy holds a Bachelor of Science degree in interior design from Meredith College in Raleigh, North Carolina, a Lean Six Sigma Greenbelt certification from Rutgers University, and recently completed her Evidence-Based Design certification. Hi, Amy. Thanks for joining us this morning. Hi, Bob and Andrew. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing great. Doing good. Good. <laughs> We're going to focus on evidence-based design this morning. And to kick things off, can you tell the listeners what that actually means? Yes. 
it's pretty counterintuitive evidence-based design, but it's really the process of basing the decisions on the built environment on credible research to achieve the best possible outcomes. So we all know that most design is dictated by certain building codes, by owner preference. We all get the big B word, which is budget. But this is using data, either existing or new research to inform the design decisions. That's the big difference in evidence-based design. Sure. Makes sense. Evidence-based design is obviously becoming a bigger player in our industry. And it's getting to the point where I don't think I can have a serious conversation where that as a topic doesn't come up. Yes. A lot of organizations, a lot of owner groups are seeking out design firms that promote that because they want that for different projects. And really, that's where it starts. The organization has to be ready to support those projects. The designers can apply that knowledge to their design. But without the commitment from the organization or the owner group, that vision is usually never actually thought out and and actually realized. How does CS support evidence-based design in that scenario? So... I like to say our name is Construction Specialties. So we've always prided ourselves on being a solutions provider for interior products, exterior products. A lot of times we're doing custom product solutions. So not only are we providing the standard products that apply to most of those projects, we have the ability to adapt and that specific product to fit certain project criteria. So in evidence-based design projects, after they sketch everything up in design development and schematic design, And then they say, hey, this is a product that we think we need. What do you think you guys can do to provide this for us? We can go back to our drawing board and see what kind of manufacturing limitations that we have to be able to provide that for them. That's awesome. That sounds great. Let's take a moment and have a case study conversation because I know that there was a recent project, and this is the University of Virginia patient tower, where evidence-based design resulted in, in actually the creation of a new product solution called the Acrovin Curved Door. Can you tell us about this? Yes. So it all started with a need to find solutions for their patient bathrooms. As one does, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the design team and their facility team had to choose between inboard and outboard toilets. So with that, they decided that it was more important. There was a lot of relevant evidence that they found on patient well-being for overall healing and decreasing that time to heal if patients have the use of nature, if they have natural lighting coming in through the window. So it was determined that they had to move the bathrooms inboard. So the challenge was, how do we fit a 47, 48-inch door opening if that door is swinging into the patient room? Now we're blocking a lot of access to the bed with a normal 90-degree corner wall. To accommodate that door, you're now cutting off the sight line to the nurse's station. So They went through a couple different design iterations and landed on radius wall. And with that, they needed a curved door. With the curved door, not a lot of, actually, no manufacturers have a curved door for commercial (laughs) use. Yeah, I was thinking I had never seen one. (laughs) Yeah. So they reached out to us and said, hey, we have over 100 different rooms exactly this size that we have to fit something for this opening. We want to maintain patient privacy. We don't want it to just be an open bathroom. So do you have the ability to create a radius door? Our doors are very heavy duty. And so being able to radius that was initially a challenge for us, but we went through a couple different product prototypes and then we were able to curve that door. So at the end of it, we ended up supplying a whole bunch of curved doors that actually glide across barn door track and it doesn't take up any space in the room. It allows the sight lines from the nurse's station and the opening was maintained at that 47 inch. Wow, that's awesome. What a great way to take information and kind of work through and create a new product to solve your solution exactly the way you need it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Amy, I appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing us this evidence-based conversation and how you guys make a difference in that process at CS. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was an honor to be with you guys today. Construction Specialties is so focused on the importance of helping architects achieve their creative vision that they have created multiple CEU courses concerning all aspects of design. Each course is worth one AIA LU HSW credit and is part of the Mastering Movement Academy provided by CS. Visit masteringmovement.net to take this and other courses. So let's move on to the next bucket of communication from a drawing standpoint. And that is I have renderings next. And I wanted to do that because I was thinking about my workflow. So when I start with the blank piece of paper, I mean, literally a lot of times it's a blank piece of paper. But the way that we work nowadays is I got to at some point move off of that piece of paper and get it into a digital format in some capacity, whether it's presentations, I got to have something to email to somebody, I got to have something I can project on a monitor when I'm standing in front of the room. I'm not pinning pieces of paper up on the wall much anymore. Mm -hmm. So one is just kind of an ideation creative process, but one of them starts to be with, I'm talking to somebody else now. It's not just internal. It's not with just necessarily another colleague. It's either a contractor, it's an owner, it's a developer or something like that. Renderings start to show up pretty soon in that process. Mm -hmm. So when I think of digital communication, I think of visualization and realism as being one of the key benefits to using renderings in your workflow. You know, digital renderings provide nowadays highly realistic representations of our designs, and it allows the people that we're engaging with to visualize a final product with just mind-boggling clarity over traditional or older drawing styles and physical models. Yeah, and I think that's a double-edged sword sometimes. I mean, I think we've talked about it before. It depends on when and where you introduce those things in the process, because if you get too real too early, it could be problematic, where whoever you're talking to gets hung up on, I don't know, the texture of the brick or the color of the brick. or the. So it could be detrimental. It is pretty wild that the, like you say, the realism of what we can do now. I mean, it's only getting better. <laughs> Yeah. It's only getting crazier. And I think that's one of the AI things it's going to do too. But make it even more like it's real. It's going to be hard to tell the difference between something that's paper architecture versus real architecture at some point. This is a bit off topic, but I was talking to somebody the other night about we're all going to end up in the Ready Player One environment. Everything's going to be so real mm -hmm. and your ability to project yourself into a space and actually feel as if you're in that space. Eventually, I don't know how we're not going to be there, the way things are developing. Yeah. So all of a sudden, why do I need to have some big, fancy place? Like, why wouldn't I just, you know, strap on a pair of goggles and I can have like something even way cooler and I'm not taking up 8,000 square feet of earth-destructing yeah. kind of environment resource-using products. Yeah, maybe so. What I just said is pretty dumb, but... But I, I feel like... It sounds scary, though, to me, but I agree. It seems like that, but it's scary. I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime, but... Yeah, I hope it doesn't happen in mine. It's one of those... Well, it, well okay, rabbit hole. Let's move on from that. <laughs> so, so another key consideration where renderings are concerned is communication of design intent. And digital renderings, they effectively communicate design intent 
where they're able to translate abstract concepts and into tangible images that people without any sort of background, education, knowledge, they can all see it and understand it in a way that a lot of other drawings don't have the same ability to do. Yeah, for sure. I think that's one of the major benefits of the rendering of any kind, right? Even if they're traditional hand-drawn sketches that are rendered out. Any kind of rendering like that provides so much clarity to the people that don't really understand what we do, right? Like if I could show somebody four elevations versus showing them a rendering of those elevations, Mm -hmm. some kind of perspective, they're going to understand that so much better than the pure elevation drawings, those kinds of things. So I think it, it does plays a major, major role in communicating to the people that aren't in our industry or don't really understand how we represent things traditionally. I think that changed the game for that kind of stuff, especially, you know, on the client side. In these moments, I always think about when my daughter, Kate, was really young. I was reading a book on parenting, you know, want to do a good job, that kind of thing. And I'm not going to say it's, it's more of a concept that's in my brain rather than me being able to repeat it kind of sentence by sentence. If you tell your kid about a rabbit, that's a good thing. And they can form an idea about it. But then if you show them a picture of a rabbit, that adds to it. And they're like, but if you can see a rabbit in person, all these have to do with like all these additional layers of information because Mm -hmm. when the rabbit moves, the hair moves a way that's different than if I just say rabbits have hair on their body. There's this way that helps people understand something that they don't have formal knowledge of. And then I go back to yesterday's AI meeting and we were talking about bump maps on brick texture for models that we're making and you start going the level of detail that's going into these renderings has to do with the pitting that is taking place on masonry products yeah in these renderings and i go that is i mean it's so next level and think about it when i got out of school none of this existed none of this existed yeah well none of it existed five years ago at this point some of it anyway the bump textures on brick come on well, well, you could get that. I got that in True Space. I could change the texture and the albedo and the reflectance. Yeah, and, yeah that's you know, true. I, I mean, I you could do so, all yeah. that sort of stuff. But now it's just like it's intuitive. And it's the level that it's at is just crazy. And this isn't so much as part of today's conversation, but it is a consideration for renderings. That is marketing and presentation. Part of it is we talked about, like, I have an end product. If I do a sketch, I'm not going to just tear it off and go, here you go. This is a nice sketch for you. Because that is more of about a process. These renderings are more like about a product and the ability to create this thing and then go, all right, here's the marketing and clients, investors, general public. I mean, like I can do something beyond the person that I'm interfacing with in that moment with these type of renderings. So the idea that entering renderings into workflow, I don't know how you can not do it now. It's a default part of that process. For sure. To me, there's a whole nother conversation there about the glossy image and sometimes it hides the fallacies and the problems of the project, but sure, that's definitely at the student level. But I think it's also at the professional level. Things look really pretty, and people can kind of overlook the fact that oh, well, that doesn't work, or yeah, there's not a there's not a guardrail on that roof because <laughs> blah blah blah. Yeah. You know those kind of things. Oh, for sure. To me, that that whole thing is a is kind of a double edged sword. The other thing I think is interesting, and I don't know if you've seen it, but maybe it's just in in academia. But in the past few years, it seems like that there's been a little bit of a pushback or a not a pushback, maybe a a diversion from like the ultra realistic stuff, rendering in that style, like so realistic. A lot of our students are not doing that anymore. No, I haven't seen that. Yeah. In professional level. But I think that's probably because, again, the idea of what we're trying to convey is different. Clients don't care if you've got some 
non-realistic images that are renders, right, that are a little bit different. I think there's that's the artistic thing that's happening in academia. Yeah, I feel pretty confident that if I was a student, if, if I was who I am right now, but student version, I don't think that I would do photorealistic renderings. They would always be some kind of like interpretation or some kind of stylized mm -hmm. creation of product. So it just sounds more interesting to me, to be honest with you. Okay, let's move on to the third major bucket that I have, and it is construction documentation, which out of all the topics that we cover or all the articles that I've ever written on my site, construction documents is, I mean, if it's not number one, it's barely not number one. Yeah. I mean, that's the same as saying it's number two, but it's so close to being number one if it's not. It's basically 1A, 1B. So hand sketching and construction documentation, those are the two biggest hot trigger. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I'm going to tell you right now, people, 2024 lineup of topics for life of an architect is going to include a lot more construction documentation and drawing topics to it. Because, I mean, we're listening and that is what people keep asking for. More of this, more of this, more of this. So we got to try to find it interesting, but. Got to figure out to talk about drawings. <laughs> I know. It's kind of funny. Here's the philosophy of drawings. Well, we're kind of doing that a little bit today. Yeah. So construction documents, for those who know what they are, you just kind of go, they are what they are. I mean, it's our ability to draw the technical aspects. This is such a big topic. Like this as a topic is so huge in my world, based on all the conversations and questions that I've received on it over the years. It's hard for me to succinctly state or summarize what it is. I mean, the short version is they're technical drawings that tell a contractor how to build whatever project it is you're asking them to do. It's for regulatory control. It's for pricing. Most of the owners that we deal with, not the really savvy developer ones, but like, let's keep it on a residential scale. The number of times when I move into the construction documentation phase of a project, the owner's like, okay, I'll see you in three months. See when it's finished. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're like, I don't need to look at these technical drawings. Details, yeah. They don't care. Yeah. So when I go about my, and I'll tell you this, maybe I'll share it. So I'm working with a, a young man in my office. We're doing a, a residential project right now. It's, it's very small. And when we got asked to do it, we were really busy. And I said, man, I don't know if I got the time for it. And this is a really small project, but I have this desire to say yes when people ask me to do stuff, because maybe doing this big deck outdoor living space expansion could lead to something, you know, something else. So I was like, I should do this. And I was like, all right, well, I'll do like a builder set. So we'll do design. We'll work through schematic. We'll come up with the whole beginning to end, what the big plan is. But then I'll do a builder set, which is essentially, and the builder didn't know what I meant when I said builder set, which I thought was interesting. But I said, it's what it's required by permit for you to, to build this project. So I'll have exterior elevations. I'll have the interior elevations, I'll have a wall section, I'll have plans, RCP, all that kind of good stuff. What I won't have is cabinet details, mm -hmm. right? I mean, like, here's what it looks like. You can go figure it out. And if you have questions, just ask. I'll give you answers for the stuff you need, and I'll, I'll let you do you for the things that you don't need help on. The owner wins because he's not having to pay me to document something that, quite honestly, the contractor might not be interested in doing the way I document anyway. So the guy I'm working with, super, super talented guy, hard worker, the whole thing, doesn't have any idea how to document any of this stuff. So we've been going through this process. So he'll send me drawings and I'll have to redline them to like just the nth degree. And it quickly got beyond a builder set because 
I have a hard time showing, oh, we have a stone arch here. You didn't draw any joints in your arch. Come on, man. We got to show where. How do you not draw that? The truth is, is in a builder set, you probably don't need to draw it. Yeah. (laughs) But I I can't. I can't. I can't. I don't know how to. I just can't. And it doesn't look right. And I'm also saying, hey, these should align and relay out your. I mean, the stuff that I was drilling down on this guy was more Pavlovian. It's more like I'm trying to train you how to do something in a certain way to where it's not extra work. Just do it this way the first time. It's no more work what I'm asking you to do, but it's more work when you don't do it this way and you have to change it. That's when it starts to fall apart. But my position on construction drawings is they are a communication tool and how they look matters. I think there's a clarity that comes across to the people reading them, just like every other drawing type we've been mentioning. If I have a message that I'm trying to convey, my ability to effectively convey that message is directly related to how those drawings are read. So I don't know how you can not worry about pen weight and alignment and organization. Like, how do you not, how does that not become important? Yeah, I don't know, but it does. I think that's one of the things I find that changed when we moved into, especially moving into Revit. When people had CAD and were using CAD, I think line weights were still really a thing in the digital world, but as you moved into 3D modeling software, a lot of that line weight stuff went away because the software doesn't really facilitate that. I mean, you can do it, but you got to dig in deep and get it, go in to change settings for all kinds of things, at least I know in Revit, to get line weights to work properly, or you have to take the extra effort to go over them again and do some stuff. So I find that nowadays it seems like, I mean, almost all of the construction documents seem to look the same Yes, in a way, right? And, yes. and they shouldn't, right? But they do. And it's all, I hate to say it, but I mean, it's all not monochromatic, but yeah, that like blah. <laughs> yeah. In reality. It's very, very flat. In truth, yeah. this is part of the reason I have stopped talking about construction documentation as a workflow or as a processor. This is how you get your drawings to look a certain way. Is when we moved into using, we use Revit, you know, that's the modeling software we use. Mm-hmm. When my office moved to that software before I was at the firm I'm at now, that became like a lot of topics came off the table because all of a sudden I'm like, well, how do I explain somebody? Well, you got to go over with a secondary line work to make this work. The workflow is odd and it's hard Mm -hmm. to explain. And so it becomes a conversation that's not really related to the, the software. Like how do you make your drawings look like that in that software? It's how do you make your drawings look like that then go do whatever it is that is of value to you in whatever manner you can make it happen in that software. Because hmm. I, don't, I don't know Revit, to be honest with you. Yeah. So, ugh. but it does, it, it makes my face hurt. All the, the drawings and, and there are times and I don't like the, I've been doing this for a long time, so I know better. I don't. I, there's so much I don't know. I could never put myself in a position to act like as some kind of authoritative individual on an opinion about something. But I will tell you, I've done this long enough to where I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of how things work. And there are times I'll look at drawings that have no pen weight to them. No, there's no hatching to it either. Mm-hmm. Or they're not, and I go, I can't read this drawing. Mm-hmm. Am, am I getting dumber? Am I losing skill? Like, why can't I read this drawing? Yeah. And I don't know if it's just because 
like they'll do something. I'll go, that's not the right hatch for CMU or that's not how you do like that's this is mortar. This is like yeah. people don't know that stuff anymore. And I don't know. The old man of me goes, I weep for the future. <laughs> yeah, I, that's a whole like rabbit hole to go down about the way that things get represented now. I mean, I'm sort of there with you on it. it. It's funny. You know, I just spent this whole last week in final reviews for my fourth year students and they did their whole building integrated studio. And so there's a level of construction documentation-ish things that are happening, mm-hmm. material representation and things like that that should really be showing up. And a couple of times there's just this like, giant section and everything's the same. There's no line weight and it's all just white. There's no poche. There's no materials. There's no... I'm sitting there six feet away going, I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. I can't figure it out. Yeah. But... Times I go, this is my shortcoming because other people are not having this problem. And I go, maybe it's because this is what it was when all this foundational knowledge was when I learned it all. Yeah. And now that we're changing from it, it's like I need to like undo what I've already been institutionalized with in order to not be impaired by <laughs> seeing something that's not the way. I mean. Yeah, I know. I get it. I get it. I'm not convinced that it's not my problem. So I don't want people that don't do it the way I do it to think that their way is wrong. It's just, it's different to a point to where I look at some of the new drawings that are being created in these drafting softwares and I'm having a really hard time reading them. And my brain instantly goes to, well, the contractor isn't 27 years old. Like he's like me. Mm -hmm. Are they going to have the same problems reading these drawings like I am? Yeah. That's the concern that I have sometimes with the way construction documentation goes. And it's the one thing that I go, well, the people paying the bills, they don't have to read them. So that it removes a whole constituency with who are you speaking with and That's where, true. where the value lies and their ability to understand it. We did a project once and the contractor rebuilt our entire project in Revit per their standards in their own office. You know, they got our drawings. Yeah. They used our drawings to build their own Revit model. To build a new model. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I got one last big chunk that I want to go through, and we've kind of been dipping our toes in this water throughout the entire episode, but it has to do with tailoring the drawing type to the audience. And I kind of broke this down into four buckets of stakeholders here. Mm -hmm. So we have students, we have architects, we have clients, we have contractors. And it's in that order because I kind of thought about when does it happen and how does the workflow? Again, same kind of concept anyway. So when there's students involved, And you're trying to explain, so like, for example, sketching as a learning tool for students is important. And I can have that same conversation with fellow architects, but I'm not going to have that conversation with clients or contractors. I can't think of an environment I ever need to do where I need to explain the importance of sketching to a client. Because if they can't just intuit the value in the moment when I'm doing it, then it has no value. I got you. Yeah, yeah. Right. Or how the iterative process of hand sketching, I guess where I'm going at is like, when we talk about hand sketching, we talk about renderings, those are more student kind of platforms, right? Because we're not, most colleges are not teaching their students how to do construction drawings. Like it's not, these are not technical degrees in that capacity. It might be going on, but I get, I kind of go from a percentage standpoint, how much are more talking about foundational design concepts? I don't know how many window details and flashing details do students work through during their curriculum in college versus articulate your idea for how you solve this problem of getting from point A to point B or whatever. 
Yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. It's not the emphasis for sure. Yeah. I mean, it happens. We know it happens. And we just got through talking about how it should happen a lot more, to be honest with you, about how construction documentation and its role, its value, how you do it, why do things work the way that they work? Well, and again, we talked about the differences. Like, I actually did that when I was in school. There was a class where we put together a set of construction documents, hand drafting, but you never had that class. And so, yeah, I think it's one of those things that has, over time, definitely disappeared. Okay. So, if I said, Andrew, here's the question I have for you today. What drawing type, if I'm saying that architects are your audience, what are the drawing types that you're using to communicate to your collaborators, to your coworkers, your teammates? Yeah, that's typically going to be either freehand or construction drawing. We're not doing the renderings. It's the two outer. Yeah. The first and the third, right? Yeah. I mean, we'll have conversations more of a change the view of this or like, I mean, we'll have conversations where renderings are concerned, but it's not as collaborative. Yeah. You know, it's more, does this equal what we're trying to accomplish in doing this rendering? But nowadays, so one of the owners of the company's name is Andrew Bennett. He has this phrase that I've kind of co-opted into my own and it has to do with working without a net. So in a lot of the meetings we have with our collaborators and collaborators in this sense can be clients. It can be consultants, meaning they could be other architects. You know, we do mm -hmm. architect of record work, contractors, developers. I mean, they could all be in the room. We will work live in the model and spin around and make changes and remodel things while they're at the table. I mean, that does happen. And a lot of times when we're doing that, we'll have two screens that are open, but the screen that we're sharing is actually, say, like Enscape. So they're seeing photorealistic, real-time, sun, yeah. shadow. This is what's happening, and this is what this looks like. Yeah. And then we'll just refresh it. So, I mean, renderings do show up, but not the put-in-your-binder-and-walk-out-the-door-with kind of renderings. Yeah, yeah. Okay, clients. Clients is another one of these. You know, we already said during the construction document phase, they just kind of disappear for the most part. Yeah, say like 90% of them. Yeah. They're just like, oh, okay, fine. Like sometimes it could be six months on some of my larger school projects. All right, we're going to have another meeting in six months and I'll show you all of it. Yeah. We do this thing where, where the clients revolve, where hand drawings, you know, and computer drawings, they show up in there too because our plans are drawn on computer. I don't do hand sketch plans. But when we actually get into doing wall sections and notating and dimensions, we don't use computer like construction drawings for those sort of conversations, but everything else where clients are concerned, definitely on the table. Mm. And we're using way more renderings in those meetings than anything else nowadays. Yeah. Because it's so easy to make them. It's so easy to make them. It's not this, you got to pay me $5,000 per rendering. Yeah. Like we have projects where somebody would pay that because we need a really, really high level, super finished product. But for the most part, when I'm saying, hey, here's how your kitchen is going to function and how this open air stair is going to come down in this space. Yeah, I'll do a rendering so they can visualize it with really good clarity as opposed to trying to ask them to marry up a plan and an elevation in their brain and understand how this is going to yeah. function. It just doesn't happen. For the section or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last kind of tailoring the drawing type to the audience is contractors. And obviously. It seems obvious. Yeah. Construction documents. That's kind of the main one. But I will tell you, there are times, and in our documentation, we will do 
axonometric drawings. So we'll do perspective drawings. Sure. I mean, yeah. we'll do drawings that are not just 2D plan section kind of drawings oh, yeah. to help articulate more complicated considerations for what we're trying to explain to folks. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's useful, again, because people can understand those things better. I remember, you know, last century, <laughs> drawing a, a three-dimensional roof scupper detail in a parapet and spending time drawing that in a perspective three-dimensional thing in CAD so that we could put it in the construction document. Of course, then it stayed, and right, we kind of reused it over and over with small modifications, but like taking the time to get it all drawn in three dimensions. Just because it was easier to understand that way. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so before we get into the last piece of today's show, which is the, we're going to do a would you rather, do you have a particular, like if you had to rank your, like one, two, three, what's your, what order of what do you like to create? Like sketching, renderings, construction documents. What do you enjoy drawing the most? Oh, wow. It'll probably be, be, it's tough. Yeah, I would go sketches, construction documents, renderings, probably. Hmm. As one, two, three, I think. But it's really hard. There's, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that it's, it's it's almost one, one, one in reality, but I don't know. I kind of thought that you would be construction documents, sketching, renderings. That's what I would have, if I had to, eh. if I was a betting man. I was borderline on those two, right? But it's only because most of the development and stuff that I do is all by hand. The majority of the early parts of any project that I do are always by hand sketching and then working out details and stuff like that. Most of the time I'm doing that by hand before they get into, I mean, even their construction details, I'm drawing those things by hand a lot of times to figure them out before they become somewhere, you know, they get modeled or whatever. So that's why I put it there. So mine is probably sketching construction documents, renderings as well. It's hard for me to put renderings in its own bucket because now they happen at the exact same time from modeling something. Yes, yes. But it's kind of a workflow. But if you'd asked me this question when I was, I don't know, 35 years old, I probably would have put construction drawings first. And that was when I was doing a lot more drafting and we were still in AutoCAD when I was 35 years old. It was a small eight person firm that did nothing but residential work. One, I don't think that Revit existed yet, but but the drawing still had that kind of aesthetic quality to them that is what motivates me to like hand sketching more now than computer drawings. Like the thing that limits is I don't look at a construction document now with any pride because <laughs> I think they look terrible. Man, when I was drawn by hand, when I was like drafting oh, yeah. by hand, oh, yeah. oh, and I, yeah, I'd yeah. have a sheet of just like technical drawings, I'd look at it. Man, I had so much pride and I was like, man, that is beautiful. <laughs> And I don't know that anybody these days does that. Nobody thinks that way. And that's not, that's not a shortcoming. I'm just saying it's just, it's a, it's a change. You know, it's funny. I would be almost a little bit, not the opposite, but a little bit different because when I had to draw this stuff by hand, like technical drawings by hand, I would always be like, man, that's crap. But then when I got to where I was doing all that stuff by CAD, I was like, man, that is nice. I had more pride in my, my CAD technical drawings because they were on point because I could never do it well enough by hand. No. Like true hand drafting. Man, I, it just wasn't my bag. I don't know. Man, I had all that down. Like the whole heavy lines to start, the rolling the pencil, the whole, I mean, yeah. I had it all. Man, I killed it. I loved it. Yeah. I mean, I like to do it, but it, lettering, man, killed me. I mean, all that kind of stuff. So 
that's why I like I really embraced it the CAD version because I could make my CAD drawings look the way I wished my hand drawings yeah, would look, yeah. you know. Well, that was the effort too. <laughs> yeah. Man, and I'm sure all the old timers can get together. And I remember redoing all the graphic symbols like here's the round door yeah, symbol yeah. and going, man, how do I get the like what's the right thickness for the circle <laughs> so it's nice and bold but it's still legible and like Yeah. I spent so much time doing all that kind of stuff. I still have it. I could probably drag it out. Anyone who's an AutoCAD, you want to hit me up? I might be able to. I might be able to send you. Yeah, some I sweet can give you a template. Stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. We've been at this for a while. Let's move into today's question, which I already said is going to be a "Would you rather?" And Andrew came up with this one, and it's somewhat holiday themed, ish, which seems appropriate because of the time of year that it is. So, here's the question. <laughs> would you you know what i might change this i'm gonna change this a little bit but here. Uh, okay fine fine not really though no so here, okay. here's the what principle's still the same yeah, yeah yeah so would you rather get a large set of gifts at once like this christmas every gift that you're ever going to get for the rest of your life you get in this one moment and then you never get another gift or do you get one gift per year for the rest of your life now I know the hesitation is, let's say it's, it's the same number of gifts, whatever it is, right? Is that kind of the premise that if you've got... Yeah, but the premise is also that like these gifts can be anything. It's like your wish list gift. All right, I want a, I want a Ferrari. Okay, you can, get, you can get that now, but you can only get a limited number or you can get one per year for the rest of your life. But the idea was not that it was the same number because it can't be. I mean, because that's too easy, I think. Well, no, I, I think it changes the question pretty profoundly because if I go, mm -hmm. yeah, give me a thousand gifts right now or I get one gift for the next 17 years because I'm going to die, that's garbage. It's got to well, be the same number. It's got to no, be the same number. That's why I put a limit on the number because in my mind, really, the number that I get now should be less. I get a set number of like, like I said, 20. Okay. All right. All right. Maybe I get 40 because I'm going to live to be whatever, 98 years old. But you only get one pure. Okay. All right. But I only get one. Like, so it was like, I get a, a bigger bounty now, but. Yes. So let me reset. it. Would you rather get a large set of 20 gifts at once right now, and it's whatever you want, and then none ever for the rest of your life, however long your life is, or you get one gift per year of whatever you want for the rest of your life? Mm-hmm. It's still easy for me to answer. Since you asked it, I'll go first. Yeah. For me, I'd take one gift a year for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Easy. And, and why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is anyone who has kids realize that if you give all your Christmas presents to your kid at one moment, it like makes their head explode and they, they don't <laughs> love it. Next thing you know, they're just playing with the box. Yeah. It's like they can't appreciate all the awesomeness of all the gifts they got. Whereas if you just kind of slow roll them out over a while, mm -hmm. each one of them is just like, it's like finding the golden ticket in the chocolate bar every time you get it. I think that if you could measure your gratitude from one to a hundred for all gifts at once, you're going to get one day of a hundred. That's it. Mm -hmm. But if I get one to a hundred, and again, since I get whatever gift I want, I get one to 100. I get a hundred every time once a year for the rest of my life. Your joy of getting all of them at once is not going to be better than the joy of me getting one of them at one time because it's something I, it's what I want. Yeah. That's kind of my premise. Mm -hmm. And then when you're done, you're done. 
and you're like, I got a sweet Ferrari. And then next thing you know, like you can't drive it because you got cataracts now. Or, or you're like, I got this sweet stereo, but I can't use it because I can't hear anymore. So like maybe your gifts would be different as you age through your life than what you want right now. Someone goes, I want a sweet jet ski, right? Someone answers this question is 35 years old. They get a jet yeah. ski. Yeah. Next thing you know, they're like, oh, my back, I can't ride it, you know, and they're done. And yeah. they don't get to change that. This is so obvious to me. It's one per year for the rest of your life. That's funny. And see, I'm an... That's the I'm right an, answer. Right I'm there. an all right now, mainly because I feel like I would leverage those to be able to have whatever I want after that. What? Yeah. Are you loopholing your own question? <laughs> Of course I am. What I want is $1 billion. Is that it? No, I wasn't going to say a billion dollars. I was going to say, like, I want a big lump of cash right now. No, that's not a gift. Cash is not a gift. I don't know. And I said that. So, okay. So, I don't want that. I'm going to get real estate or houses or something like that that set myself up for the next 20 years. Man, that's... No, that's jank. You can't... <laughs> no. I want an office building as a... Pre no, that's... <laughs> no? no. Mm, out. Wrong. Uh, see, now you're... No, but that's the rules. It's your question. That's so you the way just I set, set it rule. up. But yeah. that's a, that's ridiculous. All right. Well, then I'm going to ask for a skyscraper every <laughs> year. And then I'll just buy all... See, that's... Nah. No, no, it wasn't going to be like that. Though, there's a part of me that agrees with you. But at the same time, I think like... Okay, let's even... Let's just say that... Let's not that. Let's say it is... I got a Ferrari and I got a jet ski or whatever. But at some point, I'm just going to... I'll sell my Ferrari and get something else that I want. And be able to leverage that. But like the, whatever, the Ferrari I get right now in 20 years, it may be an antique, so it may be worth more as long as I don't like drive like a crazy person. Well, in 20 years, I can ask for that antique Ferrari as my gift. Yeah. But I mean, I'll sell mine to get me something else, I guess well, is what I'm getting at. But I could sell last year's Ferrari to get something else too. <laughs> I guess so. I'm telling you. And, and I get more. I get more than you do. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. I don't know. To me, it was it was all at once, and I would use that. My idea was to leverage it to be able to do whatever I wanted to. All right. Not to mention, if let's say one of them was okay, I want a beach house right now, and I know you could do that for your first one, but then I'm just I'm good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But one of your twenty gifts could be like a nice bar set, and you're like, now you have nineteen left. But that's not what I'm getting. I don't know. It could be. Could be a really good one. Yeah, we're not. Mine could be. I get to wish whatever for what I want. I know, but see, you only get 20. I'm going to get 40 or 50. <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah. I could get that nice bar set. But also, it's a matter of me being able to enjoy it all right now, too, though. Yeah. All right, so we're going to need people to weigh in on this one. I think Andrew's terrible. I think there's <laughs> no question that that's the wrong answer. Mm -hmm. So clearly, he thinks that I'm wrong. So that's what makes it a good question. When we knew... That we were going to answer this differently. That's why I was like, yeah, okay, let's do that one. I mean, essentially it boils down to instant gratification versus long-term gratification. But I think in my mind, you want the long-term, but I'm wanting instant to help myself ensure long-term, I guess. This is the way that I looked at it. But Okay, I'll say it again. It all comes down to your degree of gratification. I understand that. Won't be more than mine just because you got more on the, you got a Ferrari and this and this, this on one day. There's a capacity of like, oh my God, this is amazing. Maybe. I'm pretty sure that this year when I get my Ferrari or my beach house <laughs> or whatever, I'm going to be pretty stoked about that. Like, yeah. max happy gratitude. Then I get it again next year. And you're like, oh, oh, I'm done. <laughs> no, I'll be already sitting in my beach house with my Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. All right. I'm going to call that a wrap and say we've reached the point where we're done with today's conversation. <laughs> Thank you for being with us today for episode 140, Communicating Through Drawings. Special thanks to our sponsor, Construction Specialties, maker of architectural building products designed to master the movement of buildings, people, and natural elements. Construction Specialties has been creating inspired solutions for a more intelligently built environment since 1948. Visit masteringmovement.net to learn more. We'd also like to send out special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? We're available on all major podcast platforms, so hit that subscribe button and you'll get notified every two weeks when we publish a sensational new episode. While you're there, please take a few moments and leave us a five-star, ain't nothing to it, but to do it rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this imaginative episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>